Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Ipatios Moisiadis, and this is uh, another episode of uh, Clinton Gig. Today, I have the uh, pleasure to have with me Mr. John Davis, who is the founder and CEO of uh, Two Degrees Kelvin. John, uh, welcome, uh, welcome to Clinton Gig. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so today, with uh, with John, uh, we're going to uh, keep on uh, the um, the series of, of discussions we've initiated very recently. And we're going to discuss about the current situation of solar in the UK. We're going to discuss um, about the um, uh, about the situation with with COVID-19 and what uh, what this um, presents for for the businesses, small and big. And we're also going to uh, uh, dive a bit into the uh, CFDs and subsidies and uh, and also the data, which is always a, a very relevant uh, topic, John. Absolutely. So to uh, to kick off our our discussion uh, before we um, you know before we we dive uh, into the uh, uh, the questions it would be uh, really good to have a bit of, uh, of uh, you know background from you I think uh, you know uh, you are coming uh, despite the fact that you have many many years of experience in the industry you've decided very recently to to make your jump and start your own company. Um, and, and here in Clinton Gig, we, we are committed in engaging interesting companies, doesn't matter really if they are big or small. Um, so it would be extremely good to, uh, to introduce yourself, uh, you know, to give us a bit of background about uh, to dig this Galvin. Great. Yeah, so thanks again for having me. Um, I think I'll start a little bit with my background. Uh, I grew up in Pembrokeshire, in southwest Wales, around the oil and gas refineries and terminals down there. Um, my father had a construction company down there, so I very much come from the fossil fuel side from, a, from an early age. Uh, studied mechanical engineering and then started in the coal-fired uh, sector, where I worked for several years, making my way up to station manager at the coal-fired power station. So very much come from the black side, from fossil fuels, um, then from the dark side of the from force. the dark side, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then moved through energy from waste and biomass type roles and projects, which I really enjoyed. Um, before finding my, uh, I suppose my my passion in renewables and in particular solar uh, and energy storage over the last few years. So um, I worked for Cobalt Energy um, for the last seven years and started up their solar and energy storage division. And we did a lot of O&M and got into more advanced specialist testing and things like that. So that's where, that's where my background is the last several years. An opportunity came up last year for me to start my own business. Uh, and I think I'd always been around my father's entrepreneurial side for, I suppose, 25 years or so now. I always knew in the back of my mind I'd, I'd like to start and do my own thing. But it always comes down to timing. And I think there was an opportunity early last year for me to, to step away from Cobalt and to take some of it with me uh, to a certain extent, but to reinvent a new business, um, which was Two Degrees Kelvin. So Two Degrees Kelvin is a climate change engineering startup. We specialize in solar assessments, testing and optimization. We, we have developed two or three really strong technology partnerships to deploy uh, technology um, and um, sort of system testing uh, and uh, analytical 
uh, engineering on solar farms to maximize performance and longevity uh, and, and of course information and knowledge for our clients. So we, we're also a, a climate neutral business as well. Mm-hmm. So we thought being a climate change engineering business, we better kick off as we mean to go on and we offset um, any unavoidable carbon uh, through a, an official offset project and ours is in Namibia, which is a solar farm. So that's a really nice thing to do as well. Mm-hmm. And with, with, with the solar side, that's something that um, we're very focused on at the moment, but we do have ambitions to open up into other climate change mitigation related um, product services solutions in the future. So that's our, that's our grand plans. Excellent. So you've, you've took the decision to incorporate, uh, to, to incorporate the company. What was your, uh, you know, your, uh, the, the, the inner force that drive you forward, if you would like? What, what uh, I mean, you, you, you said that you found your passion in renewables. And uh, why, uh, why was, uh, why, why do you think this happened? Why was renewables your, your calling in a sense? I think, um, I think growing up with the, with the journey I've been on, being exposed to, to oil and gas down in Pembrokeshire, uh, I think I was 17 when the CM press oil disaster happened and saw the, the devastation that happened down there on that, uh, that coastline. Um, and I'm being surrounded by my father's multiple businesses. I'm working from quite a young age um, in every holiday and what have you. I always had a quite a strong work ethic um, but it's only really the last the last five to ten years where I've I've started to think well I, I could actually do this on my own and I'd like to start um, expanding my my thoughts and ambitions into into other things um, I really enjoyed the solar sector and and for all of the, the positive reasons of the environmental benefits and and things like that and, and the technology that that really has um, sort of swollen inside me, I suppose, to 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 give me that that driving force that we need to do something positive for climate change and renewables, the the, the mass deployment of renewables and and the slowdown of fossil fuels is is part of that. So that's manifested itself in in, in the concept of of my new business. Um, and I must admit, it's it's been a bit of a roller coaster the last twelve months. I've enjoyed immensely the the creative side of it, and and um, I'm presenting something that's that's my, of of my own making. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been some really tough times and difficult learning points that um, I'm sure every new business owner goes through. But uh, yeah, it's 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 had its ups and downs. But we're we're a month out from from being a year old, so so we're almost there, and you know we face back-to-back storms and a and a pandemic and all the rest of it. So if we can just get through these last couple of months, we've made the twelve-month um, target, and we've done quite well. So, so let, let's hope you're going to celebrate the uh, your, your birthday in a month's time with uh, the lockdown over. Absolutely, uh, that would be fantastic. So just uh, for for the viewers' uh, uh, benefit, uh, we we uh, we're filming this while in lockdown in uh, in the UK, um, and uh, we we have no uh, further indication of when uh, the uh, restrictions will be lifted. Hopefully, in the next uh, two three weeks. Uh, usually, uh, in uh, as in other videos. 
we're doing this in a more intimate uh, environment. We have these discussions with our guests in a more intimate environment. But now uh, we, uh, we we resolve to the uh, to, to the help of technology uh, to 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 connect with people, uh, which uh, you know are further afar. So, uh, John, you have an extensive experience in the O&M and uh, in, in, in solar plants. You've been uh, uh, you have hands-on experience uh, as an engineer. You've walked, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of plants, uh, not only in the UK, but abroad as well. Um, what do you think are the most common failures and mistakes that the industry did when they were developing and constructing the assets? And we have to, we have to say here that most of the assets in the UK were um, constructed under a, a subsidy regime one way or, the, or another. Absolutely. I think, I think it's, um, it's important to, to recognize, first of all, that, you know, we did a, we did a great thing in, in, in what we, we now call the solar boom in the UK to deploy nine gigawatts of, of ground mount solar is, 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 is a fantastic feat. And we are leading the world, you know, we're certainly up there in, in, in terms of our deployment and utilization of renewables. So that's, that's something we should be proud of. I think and I've been accused a little bit of, of scaremongering uh, in, in sometimes, but I'm 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 really only trying to make people aware of of our findings. Um, with you know, like you said, having experience of visiting over a hundred sites and carrying out multidiscipline site assessments, we're finding some some quite sobering things out there. And it's not every site, but um, what we're what we're, we're generally seeing is that. There was this to start with. There was this this cyclic annual uh, routine that we got into, where we where we cram all of these new developments in um, before the March 31st deadline, and of course that what that meant was that the the bulk of the the construction of new sites was done in the UK winter. What we do see, because we specialise in uh, solar panel testing in particular with mobile testing and in situ electroluminescence. We are seeing a lot of damage out there, which is more than likely caused by the way that these modules were handled. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a technology um, window, if you like, 2011 to 2016, where, where the modules, there, there were some, some, uh, some savings in, in time and materials and cost to get them to market as soon as possible. And what, what, that, what that inherently uh, put into to our uh, our fleet is modules that was more susceptible to mechanical damage than more modern modules manufactured in the last two or three years, for example. So we are seeing sites with with widespread mechanical damage, and that has to have been um, implemented and, and and put into these sites during the construction phase. So, but if this that. is the case, John, and sorry to jump this uh, to jump in, how could the advisors, the technical advisors at the time? Or even the asset owners, not not uh, they haven't picked up this kind of actual visual damage, structural damage that you can see perhaps in the structures as as well as the panels, as you say. Yeah, but very seldom is it is it visible. Um, you know, micro cracks and macro cracks which develop into production or power loss areas within cells. If you have a brand new panel and you smash it. If you, if you punch it, for example, you don't shatter the glass, but you fracture the silicon wafers and cells themselves, 
they might not necessarily be losing production for two or three more years because these these microfractures have to make their way down vertically to start with and then as they're stressed thermally and and with physical stresses like wind and snow and what have you the cracks widen and cycle over time until the adjoining grid fingers actually break and it's only at that stage where the current cannot jump across that you have these dark areas that you you, you see on on uh, you know in manuals and and on instagram stories and things uh, not instagram on um, on linkedin rather where you have these dark areas of of cells which are isolated from power loss mm-hmm. so you wouldn't see them um, and i think there's probably an element of, of naivety in the early days where you, you're genuinely trying to get the best price and um, without blaming the EPCs, EPCs were, were generally trying to do a good job and to use good value labor and to get them in as soon as possible. I mean, some of these sites were being thrown in literally within a six week period, multi megawatt sites. And I don't think, think things have changed and, and even new bills that we've been involved with in the last two years, there is a shift in the intelligence of the owner the asset managers that are sometimes getting involved with the construction and the TAs that they're bringing on board. There's definitely a maturity there and an awareness. If you mishandle these things, um, there will be damage and, and it, it'll start to affect the production of the site some years down the line. So you think that uh, based on what you're saying, that as an industry we've matured and we've learned from the, from the lessons of the past, uh, you know, mistakes that we did on the development of the sites or during the planning stage or during the construction stage. And now we are much more aware of, uh, of how things work and perhaps uh, what the best practices are uh, to, to build uh, these, uh, these sites properly. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's evident in the uptake in module quality services, for example. So not only uh, are, are people getting involved heavily at, at the manufacturing stage, but they're following those through um, the, the, the whole chain right through to installation. So you're, you're, having, uh, you're having testing when they come off the ship and, and arrive on site, and you're having testing in situ as well. And the reason you're doing that is because you're, for, for a, a quite a modest uh, percentage of your EPC cost, you are reducing the risk significantly. You're not only um, you know, positively affecting the power class of module that you're getting because the module manufacturer wants to present their best, their best work to you, but you're making sure that the asset or the modules at least are in tip-top condition from day one of operation, which is, which is fantastic. That's what you want. And that's, that's what you need really if you want a site to last 25 years plus. Yeah, and, and, and picking that point, I think we've seen now uh, forecasts and models and, and we, as, as, as managers or investors, or I think um, uh, we are predicting, uh, you know, lifespans of these assets to be between 30 to 40 years. Um, so when we, when we do our forecasting and our calculations, we, we have, we need to have a different sort of mentality and and um, a, a a different um, handling of how we uh, how we perceive the operational expenditure and how we build 
and what kind of CAPEX we're going to have has a direct effect on what kind of OPEX you're going to have throughout these 40 years of, of, of lifespan. I mean, do you see this kind of maturity on, on, on the investment side, on the forecasting side that now, as you say, perhaps people are calling you much earlier in the process and say, this is what we want to build. How can we optimize the operational expenditure and the operational costs moving forward? I, I think, like I said before, there is definitely an uptake in, in more proactive quality assurance services, and that includes the on-site um, module testing um, and factory acceptance tests for not only modules, but for you know, inverters and um, HV equipment and the like. I think there's definitely a trend towards um, utilizing the technology that's out there now. So not just putting the standard in, but I'm sure you, you're aware of, uh, of you know, a leading company in the UK that's, that's utilizing bifacial solar panels, for example, with, with trackers and um, you know, dual site position battery storage as well. So yeah, you're talking about GridServ, which we had the pleasure, the, the pleasure of having uh, Mark um, Henderson here with us in, uh, previous, in the previous series. So they're, they're maximizing the, the value, not only the value, but the, the, the throughput and the reliability and the quality of their asset through the selection process of, of not only design, but the components, the materials they're using, and I'm sure that the, the, the subcontractors they're using also. So that's, that's definitely coming through. And I think I'd, I'd also advise one thing that I've seen in, in the field a lot, and, and it may have something to do with the huge amount of rain we've had over the last few years, but um, th there's an alarming amount of sites that for multiple months a year are at least ankle deep in water, if not worse. Um, and I'm familiar with the development process and them going through the, the flood risk assessment. And it's a little bit of a tick box exercise. Yeah, you've done that, on you go, you've got planning. But the reality is that you're, you're exposing yourselves to liability there. You can't get to your sites to maintain them. And when you want to go on to sell that site, it's, it's that hidden liability. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that there's a, there's a bit more focus on that. You, your, your options for site selection are going to reduce significantly, and that's obviously down to the connection uh, situation. But not only that, that you know whether there's private wire um, opportunities as well. So the, it, there's a lot of focus needed, I think, on actually pinpointing those sites. It's not just as simple as finding a farmer who's got some nice flattish south-facing land uh, with a grid connection 100 yards down the road anymore it's, there's a lot more to it if you want it to be a sustainably profitable subsidy free asset for 40 years you've touched on uh, on another point here i mean it's a, it's a very kind of sensitive point that uh, divides a lot of people but i think it's uh, it's worthwhile you know discussing it uh, and I'm talking about the reintroduction of CFDs in the UK. And just to, uh, to give you my, um, my peace of mind, um, I think that, um, and I know, I know this is uh, perhaps a, uh, you know, a very kind of divisive uh, matter between, uh, between us in the industry, is that um, I, I am a true believer that uh, given the, the levels of uh, LCOE that we've reached, 
Um, and the, the fact that we had and we have uh, sites that uh, they started the construction uh, in the uh, unsubsidized era, as we say. I think it's, uh, it is extremely sad to see that the government is taking a, a, a money side decision to bring in back subsidies where, in my humble opinion, they create a bit of market imbalance. And I think that there are many more uh, actions that the government can, can do to help the further deployment of renewable energy, both in onshore wind and, and in solar, for example, in planning, in environmental conditions, in, um, in, uh, in the design and the management of the grid and the grid connection options and, and many, many others. Um, so what, what is your take on that? What is your opinion? I think anyone who was involved in, in, in the boom um, was extremely grateful for that really positive period. And, um, you know, a lot of companies became incredibly wealthy and, and did very well out of that uh, period. And I, I was disappointed, I suppose, when the rocks reduced. Um, we all like were. I was, <laughs> like I was with whenever subsidies are reduced, it's just a natural, a natural reaction. But I think now, now that I've come to terms with why they did that and, and that it got to a point, like you said, where it didn't actually need subsidies and there was a drop off, drop a cliff drop in terms of new construction or respite, but it, it has started to come back up and at much slower, sustainable um, pace that, and it, and it proves that it can be done and with, with component um, and material prices coming down, I think that it's, it's, it's much more sensible now, now that we've proved that we can do it without subsidies, that we stay on that track. And, and like you said, there are other things that the, the government can do. They can, they can make it much easier for us to, to carry out private wire arrangements, for us to, um, you know, the connections, there's a, a real uh, sort of tight spot for us at the moment in the, the large scale solar industry and, and faster regulation as well and pushing these things through. So there's, there's, there's much wider support there. It doesn't necessarily need to be, right, here's some more subsidies. And, and how are you gonna decide? Is it just the big lumpy solar farms, solar projects that get the CFDs in the auctions? You know, what else are they gonna throw into it? So, and, and the other thing just, just to touch on is, you know, in, in the peak of the boom, there was a lot of people multiple layers of froth and everyone was getting was was making great money and and that's great but it's unsustainable so i think from a development perspective it does need to come more in line and and, and more of an integrated development through to operational management um, so that it's done correctly and that people look after the pennies um, and and there aren't multiple markups on on every stage of the, the process absolutely i think we, we totally agree and i think um we need to we need to understand that whenever you have a market imbalance then straight away you're losing the fundamentals of of how how economics work with supply and demand so development should should follow demand if you have demand, then you will have regulated prices and you will have sustainable 
and, and normal uh, profit margins. I remember back in the day we were making, not just, just us, but everybody was, was, was making a killing on the development side. It was just the mm -hmm. prices that were not uh, sustainable, but all of that was, was driven by the subsidies and even the panel manufacturers, the inverter manufacturers, they were not pricing their, their products based on you know, cost plus, but they were pricing the, the products based on the expectation of return from a fund, which uh, uh, in the boom, as you say, could be low two digits, high one digit, maybe. Um, so uh, they were calculating, you know, uh, what kind of uh, what kind of price they could uh, they could put in order to make the financial model work. Um, and I think if you reintroduce subsidies now, then you're losing that kind of normalization that we had after the um, after the massive uh, cliff drop that you've mentioned which was uh, 2016, I guess, uh, 2015, 2016, uh, with, the, with the demise of the, of the rocks. Um, moving to, to another subject, which is again very uh, very kind of sensitive, if you would like, especially now in the services industry. We've seen um, and we had various discussions in uh, public forums, in, in events, in conferences, um, and I personally expressed uh, many times my, my opinion on the matter. But over the past four years now, we are still discussing. Uh, we're still discussing about prices, and prices in services are not sustainable. And we see companies that um, they go out of the, the sector because they cannot uh, they cannot compete on on price. Um, and I'm still wondering why this is, and why are we perhaps still self cannibalizing? And perhaps it would be very interesting to hear your opinion. What do you think would be the um the the you know the, the the switch where it will stop us competing on price and we will start competing perhaps on, on value yeah it's 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 a difficult one and we came into the solar OM business uh, in 2012-13 um, and we almost inherited european norms you know uh, the dizzy heights of, sort of 10 or 12 thousand uh, pound per megawatt per year for for O and M for full scope O and M, um, and that uh, didn't take long to halve. Um, and in 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 recent years, it's it's almost it's almost halved again. So it's really down in the in the low uh, thousands. But I think I, I I can remember speaking to you probably three years ago, something like that, Eupatius, uh, and you you uh, suggesting that. This is what will happen. It will consolidate. There will be six or seven main players, and then everyone else will just be, you know, either either out or they will be on the peripheral and they will be supporting the six or seven. And that's that's exactly what's happened. And what you need now to bring to the game, if you're going to win a multi-site tender, is you need to be bankable. You need to have sophisticated data analytics and reporting systems you need to have a very smart and effective way to manage your workforce throughout the UK which is notoriously hard to get to all of the nooks and crannies um, via road um, if you don't have all of those then you're you're inefficient um, that there are there are a small number of those still active but I would predict that, that they may well be just one side of um, of a consolidated company so they would be the cost center for for a fund's uh, delivery on operations. Um, the, the the true 
through play O and M's um, are having to really move and shift to get themselves uh, efficient. Um, yeah, so there is an element of self cannibalization. Cobalt energy is a, a good example. We strategically moved away from O and M because we could not um, break through the, the tier two O and M. So, so we were subcontracting to EPCs during the pack to fact period. Um, but we, we tried for three or four years, probably longer than we should have, to break through and to get that direct uh, contract with an asset owner. Mm-hmm. I observe a, a small shift in the business models, um, but also there is, I think, on the services, especially third-party services, companies like us where we sit in the middle, uh, perhaps, you have two ways of pressure. You have the pressure from your peers, from your competition, which is other companies that they offer the same sort of services. And then you have the pressure from um, larger asset owners, IPPs, that they internalize a lot of the services that, uh, that traditionally you would find on a third-party asset management company or an O&M company or any other specialized services company. So we have two essentially forces that they, uh, they, they, they attack um, the, the, the pure service industry or they, they take parts of that. However, very recently we've seen models, for example, we've seen discussions and I've seen some practical examples on contracts and companies that they have started separating this all-inclusive, um, you know, uh, umbrella type uh, contracts and they, they separate them in electrical and electrical services where again, they can reduce the, the fat and the, you know, the cost plus margins that a lot of this kind of all-inclusive contracts have. Mm-hmm. We've seen players that they've decided to uh, to take a a more drastic uh, uh, action and, and go and start building their own spare parts and start building their own logistics and warehousing facilities, so we've seen we've seen a lot of innovation on business modeling in the sector, and I think this is in one hand good, but on the other hand, I think we are reaching that point where you're going to have the three, the four, the five, if that that they're going to be dominating, not just in the UK market, but perhaps there will be larger international players. And I think the next level of consolidation is going to be between uh, having one service provider, which is you will have an asset management and an O&M company as a service provider. Uh, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit radical perhaps for the moment, but uh, looking at other industries uh, like, uh, you know, the real estate and the facilities management, I think this is this is where we go. What's what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, I think I think um, I think they're the ones that that are going to survive. And you you wouldn't start off with a O and M plus asset management company now with no, no assets under your wing. Um, you you do need that position in the market or something to to have a step up on. I think. Um, I think things are going to shift now. We've just moved through the average or the mean age for the UK fleet is around five years now. And looking at um, more mature markets like Germany and Spain, the seven to 12 year mark is, you know, and they've got slightly younger technology, but it's similar vintage to what the early stuff that we put in. You're going to start seeing sites creak. And if you, if, if O&M's, 
aren't clear on the liabilities um, on the back end. We've already seen in the UK some O&Ms paying huge amounts of liabilities for availability shortfalls. If, if, you, if you haven't positioned yourself well there with perhaps just, just clean, uh, slightly less risk service provision, and if you want some extras, it's, it's on top, you're going to be vulnerable unless you've got enough scale that, that it, you know, the good out, uh, balances the bad. So I think there's going to be some real testing times. Now we're breaking, we can break through that 10-year period. We've got a lot of inverters that are going to need changing out. We've got a lot of dodgy HV equipment out there. Modules are deteriorating, and and I know I'm a scaremonger on this side, but they re they they really are. And, and and technology has moved on so fast in the last few years. It's less of a pro less of an issue now, but there's a there's a vintage in there, particularly in the UK. They're going to see um, you know, lots of lots of interesting challenges over the next few years. Lots of opportunities for revamping and repowering, and you know shifting from a 25-year design to a 40-year design. How are you going to how are you going to do that? So, uh, and that's really what I'm passionate about and interested in. That's why I want to position Two Degrees Kelvin to be a specialist in providing asset owners with the knowledge. That they're in informed, they're in an informed position to make investment decisions moving forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, we've we've touched on uh, asset optimization. We've touched on revamping, um, uh, but I think all of this starts with uh, data gathering. And, and there is also another big discussion in the sector about digitalization and data analytics. Um, uh, naturally, you would expect that we use all of this kind of, you know, information and data to take informed decisions. However, um, I see a bit of a, you know, I see I see a bit of a paradox here. On one hand, this is where we want to go, and this is what we want to do. But on the other hand, I don't have many um, examples uh, in the industry where we have validated data sets. And I think this starts with the sensors. It starts with how we treat data from the field. So you've been in the field, you've you've you know you've you've done hundreds of checks. So what is what is your opinion? Are we having the right sort of kit in the field, either on the data loggers or modems? Are they secure enough? We had a, a very um, you know a very intuitive discussion with uh, with uh, Andrew. Uh, Eisenberg from Green IT about cybersecurity, and I was, you know, um, I was surprised uh, to, to see that the situation was pretty much the same in the states as it is in Europe, which is we haven't ever figured out cybersecurity yet, in a sense, in our parks. But also the sensors, we're not calibrating the sensors, we're not servicing them correctly. So, what do you see? What is your practical field experience on the matter? Yeah, I, th I think. Um even in, in the sort of early days of the boom, only going back a few years, the, the big one was the, the pyranometers, right? And, and uh, that really is the crux of what everyone's being paid on. It's, 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 it's the sunshine enables you to, to calculate those, those PRs. And, um, and if, if that's not being done properly, or, or there's no validation. So everyone just assumes that they sit there, they're an expensive bit of kit, and they're just, you know, I would say purring away. They, they, they sit there silent, but they work. 
And as long as you do your calibration, that's absolutely fine. No questions asked whatsoever. Um, we explored a, an on-site calibration service at one stage, but the, the, the equipment needed for that, the practicality of, of bouncing around a, you know, 30 grand in the back of your van, um, the sensitivity of that equipment, is, it, it just wasn't practical. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this, 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 the normal stuff isn't there for O&M just to make sure that they're cleaned regularly and, um, and, and their position is, is verified. Um, but you've also got, um, we've got some equipment, for example, where you can install um, a side-by-side pyranometer. We've got two different pyranometers and we, we put them to mimic almost a, a clone, if you like, of the ones that are in situ. And we can run parallel data capture on a logger um, and then we can look whether there's any discrepancies um, and, and then that would give you validation of the data or a means to say, well, we need some new pyranomasis here. All of this old data is, is, is not right or, or, it's, mm-hmm. or it's corrupt. Mm-hmm. I think some of the more sophisticated software systems um, that, that, that are boasting um, you know, machine learning and AI and all of these sorts of things, it does come down to garbage in, garbage out. That's Unfortunately, if you're just going to do things on a desk with a software system, the stuff on site, the actual capture of the voltages and the temperatures and whatever it may be, it needs to be bang on. And that includes all of the data comms side as well. So, yeah, I think for us on the digitalization side, what's what's important, because we, we're not an O&M or an asset manager, so we haven't had to necessarily deploy these data analytics software packages now. What we're doing is we're capturing physical, let's say physical data, but real data on sites, so whether that be test results, um, images, electroluminescence, uh, you know, graphs, whatever those things, the physical things that, uh, that allow you to make decisions or to ultimately understand the true operational condition of the site traditionally they've been you know going back several years they've been in paper copy um then then obviously the the infamous pdf but the problem is with that is they just go into someone's folder on their desktop somewhere and uh, and and they often get misplaced and go with people as they leave companies and uh, and it's it's difficult particularly if you're looking at site-wide data if you're looking at twenty thousand images on a site it's just not a PDF solution. So Absolutely. we're working with uh, industry leaders in this, who, who you know very well, um, you know, Will Hitchcock and his team at Above, um, to, to, to work with them on their digital twin platform, where everything that we do, we present on that platform, which is hung off that digital asset. So you can go right down to module level, uh, and that gives you a point in time record of, of what we've captured but also it's a, a repeatable auditable um, method by which you can go back to that particular asset or an area of the site or a string or a transformer or an inverter you can look at the whole history of, of what you've looked at particularly for electroluminescence it's quite exciting for us because if you plot successive years you can actually see rather than sending that solar panel away to be uh, accelerated tested you can actually see it in, in real time. You can see the deterioration of the solar panel as it's aging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, uh, it's it's uh, it is. You, you've just you've just given us a different perspective of 
there's a whole lot of historical data and all of checks that the TA has done that specialist companies like yourselves they uh, do for you know the, the, the data that the drones capture and all of that up until very recently they were not consolidated on, on single on single platforms but now we see platforms like the one uh, that that above has as, as you've mentioned that uh, they are solving this kind of situation but also uh, having systems like this for the asset owners and for the asset managers provide a further level of um, of uh, uh, if you would like uh, of um, insight into the into the park itself so you can make then uh, decisions based on on information and you can compare and you can audit and obviously down the line uh, if, if, this, if the asset changes hands these sort of uh, data points that they are captured they offer high higher valuation uh, uh, over the over the cell let's say um, be very mindful of uh, of uh, the time, uh, John. And time flies when uh, when you have uh, very interesting discussions. Um, uh, allow me a question that uh, I would like you to you know be very kind of on the spot and brief. Um, okay. And going back into your startup situation, I would like you to give me very briefly your lowest and highest moments over the last year. And uh, if you there is one lesson that you can say to someone that's starting now perhaps even with this difficult situation with COVID which we haven't touched yet um, what would that be? We we recently won a um, uh, FSB startup business of the year for Wales so we were really really pleased with that and, and really chuffed like any accolade really. Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. Uh, so I haven't really showed it off yet. It's just sat over there, and and uh, no one's been in in the office for a few weeks. Uh, but that's that's probably my high. That was that was a nice thing to achieve. Um, in terms of the low, we've had a real tough time over the last two or three months with with one particular contract. Um, and without going into too much detail, I think it it sort of flows into the lessons learned really where working for much larger businesses in my past um you, you only do what, what, what your job is to do so everyone else worries about finance admin insurance paye and all of the other bits that, that protect the business and being a business owner you've very quickly got to get up to speed and the haste to win contracts uh, unfortunately in this particular occasion was greater than uh, you know, the, the, the sort of calm and steady and, and sensible thinking that I should have deployed. So um, not only in, in making sure you've got suitable insurance for everything that you do and don't trust insurance brokers uh, um, in that regard. They are not experts in business and you really need to make sure you're covered. We had a, a, quite, a quite a nasty theft, um, which we suffered a financial loss because we didn't have suitable cover, but also in contracting and, and subcontractors in particular and making sure that your, your boilerplate contracts are watertight and you get it done early. Just make sure that both covered fairly uh, and we've got a, uh, you know, some, some clawback if things go wrong. hope that wasn't too uh, waffly. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, and uh, you know, just, just uh, reaching, uh, reaching the end, uh, 
if if we could close with um, you know with a bit of a positivity perhaps how do you see the uh, the future of, of solar pv and perhaps battery storage as well in the uk and what do you think the new norm would look like and what do you you know what do you uh, look uh, forward to as as two degrees kelvin i, th I think it, it is a positive outlook for for solar to start with with over five gigawatts of, of large scale solar in the development pipeline, you don't know how much of that is going to go forward, but that's a real positive move, particularly in these subsidy free times. Battery storage is, is a different situation. It's, it's much more complex um, with all of the, the revenue stacking that, that, that you need to put in place for these short term contracts with, with DNOs and grid. It, it is difficult. It's much more difficult. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the co-location of solar and battery storage does need to, to move on a little bit. But I, I like the idea of using battery storage for not necessarily these advanced services that, you know, sub-second frequency response and all of this sort of thing, but more power shifting. So actually take, taking the, the energy when it's not needed and putting it to where it is needed. So, and that, that goes from utility scale all the way down to residential. So I think it, it will come on. And also not only lithium ion, but, but different chemistries, you know, vanadium redox flow batteries and things for extended periods up to eight or 12 hours of energy generation compared to lithium ion, which is, which is sort of topping out at around two unless you, you overload it. So there's different chemistries and there's also different technologies coming on board, not just chemical batteries, but, gravitational uh, potential energy mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you've got energy vaults you've got gravitricity all of these amazing um, novel energy storage ideas and concepts which are, are going to come through the conception and development and start to be put into um, at least pilot plants but if not uh, utility demonstration plants so solar and battery storage for me is still a fantastic opportunity um, I've also got an eye on on hydrogen and mm -hmm. the, the EV market is accelerating away, uh, excuse the pun, but uh, that, I think lithium ion is, is, is leading the way there. Um, but there's going to be huge challenges with, with uh, concern to connectability around uh, an island such as uh, the UK or isles like the UK. And I think hydrogen has a, a real role to play and in particular green hydrogen. So if you can make hydrogen green, there are some massive efficiency challenges to overcome, but that can real, really fill the gap between automotive, you know, mainstream and agricultural, industrial and, and commercial uh, large uh, vehicles and planes and trains um, and, and things like that. So I, I think there's, there's also something to do with hydrogen uh, generation as well, that power generation, I mean, um, that's quite interesting as well and that's the sort of thing that that we want to get ourselves into we want to become um, a, a green tech uh, climate change mitigation idea development company that comes up with these solutions and, and launches new new divisions uh, and products to to the world so that's where I see uh, ourselves going we, we, we want to walk before we uh, before we run so we, we're going to concentrate on the solar for the next 
for the next couple of years and, and, and plant some seeds and, and see where they go. But we've got quite a lot of exciting partnerships coming up this year, um, not only with world leading technology providers, but on the academic front as well, and doing some Innovate UK type um, collaborative um, academic projects as well with Cardiff University and the likes to try and develop some, some niche and, and unique and innovative technologies going forward. So Excellent. Positive outlook. Yeah. Positive outlook and innovation and reinvention, perhaps in these uh, uh, difficult times. Uncertain times. <laughs> Excellent. John, thank you very much. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. I uh, look forward to seeing you in person. Thanks. Nice. Thanks for having me. You've had yes.